This is Sam. And this is Jen. And this is Pegasus Weekly, where we cover three cool equestrian stories and put out a lesson in equinomics from each one of them. And in case you missed last week's episode where we coined our new mantra of equinomics, we are referring to the economics of the horse world. Before we jump into our three awesome stories this week, have you subscribed to the Pegasus Weekly podcast yet? We would love it if you hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, and better yet, leave us a review. We would love to know what you think of this podcast and any story ideas that you might want us to cover in future episodes. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at the Pegasus app and even join the herd on the Pegasus platform. It's completely free to join and we're about to roll out some awesome new features that will truly help revolutionize the equestrian industry. Pegasus is currently available as a web-based platform, so head to www.thepegasus.app to join the herd. And our team is currently building the app, so we'll keep you posted when that's released into the Google and Apple app stores. Alrighty then. For our first story, we're taking a look at one of the key components of the polo industry, Argentina's horse exports. How has Argentina become home of the world's best players and horses and what is needed from their government to ensure that it continues to grow? For our second story, we're heading to my own home country to take a look at Australia and a recent equestrian study and growth strategy that was published by their governing body, Equestrian Australia. It turns out it's not just a report you'd expect the head of a sports organization to produce. The organization was actually in some serious trouble over the last few years with scandals and safety concerns, and this report helped show that they're back on track. For our third and final story, we are doing a deep dive on the equestrian labor market right here in America. Why are we all struggling to find help around the barn? Is it in fact harder now than it was, say, five years ago? Today, we will answer all those questions and more as we explain how nationwide labor shortages across all industries in America are trickling down to affect us specifically in the equestrian industry and what we can do about it now to fix those shortages on our own. No more boarding barns closing their doors because they can't manage the workload as a one-man shop. All right, with all that said and all of that to look forward to, let's hit our three stories. For our first story, we're talking about the current season, and we don't mean the cicada season that's currently overtaking the state of Virginia at the moment, nor the summer heat, but rather the polo season. You guys probably know by now that we live in Middleburg, Virginia, aka the horse and hunt capital of the world. For our new listeners that aren't familiar with Middleburg, think gorgeous horse farms everywhere, and these stables aren't just for housing members of hunt clubs. There's every kind of horse sport presence here. There's eventers, show jumpers, and surprisingly, lots of polo. So it's now polo season and there are a lot of polo farms nearby. So we got to thinking, how on earth does this polo industry work? So this week, we got together with our Middleburg neighbor who happens to be a professional polo player to talk about it. We're actually going to do a full interview with this particular athlete about the polo world from the player's point of view. So hang tight for that. But until then, this story jumps into an important component of the polo world, Argentina's polo horses. Having come from the eventing world, my assumption of what polo was is that you take a lot of good-looking, wealthy guys, the best being from Argentina, and buy like a dozen ponies and voila, you've got yourself a polo team. Turns out you're not totally off there. And again, we'll jump into the world of polo from the player's eyes later. But right now, let's jump into Argentina's polo horse exports. You might have already heard this too, but there's a unique and thriving industry that has come to represent an important 
important element of Argentina's agriculture economy, and that is their polo ponies. The polo horse is the center of the sport and the engine of the industry's economy. And interestingly, the polo horse is not a specific breed. Instead, the term polo pony refers to a type of horse with certain characteristics. So what does the perfect polo pony look like? The answer is it must be well-proportioned, robust but not heavy, and it must demonstrate the ability to accelerate, stop, and turn very quickly. It kind of sounds like you're describing a CrossFit athlete. I might be. I might be. (laughs) The Argentina Polo Horse Breeders Association was established to encourage and reward the development of polo horses that fit the game's ideal. And especially at the upper echelons of the sport, extreme attention is paid to bloodlines and the breeding of polo horses with the intention of developing horses that are fast, agile, and strong. So unlike other equestrian sports where certain breeds rule the track or field, in polo, any breed of horse is eligible, which is pretty cool because this creates a wider gene pool from which to recruit, operate, and breed. But as a result, reproductive technologies such as artificial insemination, embryo transfers, and in some cases, sadly, even cloning are widely used in polo horse breeding. So I was right. Argentina is home to the world's best polo players, but the country's dominance of the sport extends beyond the pitch into the breeding of the horses. So many of Argentina's polo families and organizations have been painstakingly developing their genetic lines for generations. This tradition of horsemanship, combined with the relatively low cost of raising strings of polo horses in Argentina, has enabled the country to effectively become the global supplier of polo ponies. Polo players from all over the world go there to search for their next perfect horse. Buyers can search for polo ponies by two main methods. The first is a private search using the help of a polo organization or individual connections, not dissimilar from how it works here in America. The second is a more public option, which includes going to an auction. Many of the polo pony breeders in Argentina hold these auctions to sell their young stock. A lot of international buyers choose to keep their horses in Argentina, but in many cases, they're shipped back home abroad. In 2018, Argentina exported 2,700 horses valued at $35.5 million USD, which was an increase of nearly 17% compared to 2017. What's really interesting is the value of the pony has increased over the years, but not necessarily the amount of horses being exported. For example, in 2009, so nearly a decade prior, Argentina exported 4,400 horses, so they exported less from 2009 to 2018, but the horses were worth more. And the value of Argentina's exported horses isn't unique to just polo ponies. Racehorses, jumpers, and other breeds have all increased in value over the last decade with racehorses as their most valuable export, costing an average of nearly $53,000 in 2017 compared to the average polo horse, which was valued at nearly $10,000. The top destinations for Argentina's equine exports are consistent with polo demand. In 2018, the primary destination for Argentinian polo ponies was the United States, which received 703 horses, followed by the UK, which received 395. Both these countries have thriving polo scenes, which is why you see so much polo ponies here in places like Middleburg, as well as all those famous photos of Prince Harry and William out on the field. Yeah, both amateur and professional players are strong candidates to purchase and import Argentine polo ponies to supplement the domestic supply. So let's talk politics for a second. Like anything happening in Argentina, the country's polo horse industry suffers from political interference. There is overarching macroeconomic instability in the country and equine exports are heavily taxed. Under former President Macri, polo horse exports were taxed at 12% and worse still, it is believed these tariffs will continue to rise to increase the country's revenue. And these high taxes have a secondary consequence of discouraging the full disclosure of the value of the polo pony. 
So depending on the level of trust between the parties involved in the purchase, what will most likely occur is the horse values are chronically understated in order to limit the tax exposure. Pricing horses is already highly subjective. So add to that the tax avoidance and you have a really challenging transaction. And in the greater context, it's nearly impossible to establish a prevailing market. Therefore, tax avoidance must be addressed for the establishment of taxation systems that limit loopholes and encourage compliance. So what's our takeaway here, Sam? Jen and I are lucky to live amongst some of the world's best equestrians here in Middleburg, and that includes professional polo players. We got the scoop on what makes Argentina dominant in the sport of polo. Not only does the country have the world's best players and horses, but they've become a major exporter of both. In particular, the Argentine polo pony industry has become a thriving sector that gets exported to polo players around the world. This industry contributes to Argentina's agricultural imports and supports an expansive economic network of breeders, vets, farriers, you know, all the typical equestrian businesses who make the industry work. There's still room for Argentina's polo horse industry to grow, but it will be essential that the industry is accompanied by thoughtful government policy that is vital to make this a reality. For our second story, we're going down under to the outback, mate. Sorry, I couldn't resist. (laughs) (laughs) While technically Pegasus is an American company with an Australian co-founder, that's me, let's just say this company and podcast has dual citizenship. Which makes the story very close to home and fitting, which is about the economy of equestrian sport in Australia. Equestrian sport is a $1.14 billion contribution to Australia's economy each year. And translating that here in America, that equates to $860 million. A community impact study commissioned by Equestrian Australia was recently published with the aim of achieving a better understanding of equestrian sport, its stakeholders, and potential for growth and development. Equestrian Australia said their main goal of the report was to determine the contribution of the sport to the broader community within Australia by taking a look at its economic, social, and health benefits. Let's take a step back. Let's start with who actually is Equestrian Australia? So the EA is the peak body for the administration of equestrian sport down in Australia. Their statement says they encourage the commitment to success at every level of the sport and that it's reflected in world-class results at the Olympic level. And we've seen these results. To date, Australian equestrians have won nine gold, four silver and eight bronze medals at the Olympic and Paralympic Games. Their athletes have achieved major victories at international events. And as a result, Australia, I'm proud to say, has earned the reputation as an elite equestrian nation. Right. So let's start with the good stuff about how dedicated these Australian riders are, particularly the eventers. Yeah. So outside of the Paralympics, where Australia has had a number of successful riders, Australia has only really been competitive in eventing. And wow how they had some serious war stories. It began with Australia's first gold medal for equestrian at Rome in 1960, when Bill Roycroft completed his show jumping round with a broken shoulder and a dislocated collarbone after coming off in cross country. But wait, the best Australian grit came in at the Olympics in Atlanta in 1996. On the team was the youngest ever rider to represent Australia, 21-year-old Wendy Schaefer on her pony club horse. And Only two months prior to the event, she had broken her leg in a fall in training. For our non-eventing listeners, riders walk the cross-country course before they have to ride it. So they work out their strategy and they get a good feel of how the course is going to ride. Because of Wendy's broken leg, she had to be driven around the course in a golf cart. But then other teams complained, particularly the Americans, (laughs) and said if she wasn't fit to walk, then she wasn't fit to ride. So what did she do? She got out and walked the course 
bleeding through her socks. Not only did Wendy show the world, especially America, that she could walk and then ride, but she won gold. Another amazing Australian Olympic story is of Gillian Rolton and Peppermint Grove, aka Fred, who at the Games in 1996 also slipped on a patch of mud. Rolton broke her collarbone and several ribs in the fall, but if she had withdrawn, the team's medal chances would have been lost. So, she kept riding. Because she was in such a delicate and what must have been seriously excruciating amount of pain, she ended up falling off again into the water and yet got back on and finished the course with one hand on the reins. Australia ended up winning 57 points ahead of America and Rolton wore a sling on the winner's podium. Okay, so not only are they historically great riders... We recently discovered they're great riders with a new plan. In May of last year, Equestrian Australia released its five-year strategic plan. We will put it on Pegasus so you can read it in detail, but essentially, it's a well-thought-out document with their vision, purpose, and list of priorities. Yeah, each priority is supported by a detailed operational plan that will adapt and evolve over time to ensure that equestrian sport advances and grows throughout the country over the next five years and beyond. But it's very interesting that the EA recently released this report, but we'll get to that in one moment. So back to the economic report we began our story with. The information in this report was collected from equestrian stakeholders and participants, including an online survey of more than 4,500 members from within the Australian equestrian community. And what did they discover in the findings of the economic report? Well, to start, they found the total equestrian economic contribution is Australian $1.14 billion, which excludes Horse racing, polo, polo cross, rodeo, western, and tent picking. Racing alone is a huge industry in Australia, so you can imagine how significant that total number must be. Interestingly, the report found that annual contributions to physical and mental health was an additional $12.7 million, which equates to about $9.6 million USD. The study asserted that the sport has a range of social strengths, including lifelong participation opportunities and high levels of family and female involvement. It claims the duty of looking after horse Horses requires commitment, discipline, and purpose, with 76% of equestrian Australian members saying they are involved with the sport for the love of horses. The EA stated that there is significant commitment to the sport, with 75% of members being involved in the sport more than four times per week, while 78% have been participating for more than 10 years. I mean, this all really resonates with us, as I'm sure it's resonating with you listeners too. Another really interesting finding is that the Australian equestrian community spends $371 million or $280 million USD each year on the maintenance and transport of horses a big number that did not go unnoticed. Yeah, the EA said that now that they know how big the contribution of the sport is to the overall economy and mental health, equestrians have a strong platform that will be fundamentally important as they work towards growing participation and building the sport's public profile. Okay, so this feels like what any good sports governing body should be doing. You know, the EA is doing their part to get the data that they need to help grow awareness and participation in the sport, and then they release a plan based on said data. But why are they releasing a detailed strategy now? (laughs) A good question. Why this report and strategy is so timely is that earlier last year, Australia was at risk of not being able to field an equestrian team for the Tokyo Olympics. So the EA went into voluntary administration after Sport Australia pulled funding, citing governance concerns. It has since overhauled its constitution, installed new directors and new management, and got the Olympic program back on track. 
For those living outside Australia and who might have missed it, it was actually quite a shock last year when Sport Australia told Equestrian Australia that they wouldn't receive funds and pretty much put them on the Olympics chopping block. And it was all because of the then poor governance of Equestrian Australia. Matt Carroll, the CEO of the Australian Olympic Committee, has said that the EA's membership will not be automatically reinstated unless it's accredited by the FEI and seen to have made marked improvements in participation numbers, governments, and safety across all levels. This was a particularly pertinent request after the death of two young riders, Olivia Inglis and Caitlin Fisher, back in 2019, in which course design, the handling of accidents, and existing safety measures came up for review. There were 31 recommendations passed down by the Coroner's Court of New South Wales, including rule changes to require a medical response team consisting of at least two medical providers on site at events, each with a baseline level of quantified competence to deal with accidents appropriately. Other recommendations included an increased focus on training volunteers to respond to accidents, further testing of safety measures included on courses, and a more robust reporting system for competitors to relay any concerns they have about the course. Safety on cross-country is a major topic in every country, especially here in America. So all these recommendations are something that every country should take seriously and implement for the safety of horse and rider, especially any governing body of the sport. But back to EA's shaky foothold in the last few years. So in addition to the tragic deaths, there was a scandal surrounding four-star event rider Callum Bugzag, who was charged with sexually assaulting another rider in February of 2019. In not banning him from competition through the course of the investigation, the EA was found to have breached the FEI safeguarding policy and in doing so was complicit in the further harassment of the victim by him and his partner through March of last year, for which the rider received further charges in May. So Bugzak was eventually barred from competition after intervention by the FEI. Last June, Sports Australia's CEO, Robert Dalton, and the Australian Institute of Sports CEO, Peter Condy, stated, in our view, it is the fundamental structure of sports national governance that has proven itself manifestly unfit for purpose and now needs to be overhauled. No other sport funded by the Australian Sports Commission has experienced this level of board turmoil. It is self-evidently an unacceptable situation that does not serve the interests of the sport. Funding will cease as a result of governance that has fallen well short of acceptable standards. So that was last year, and the board has since taken action to ensure that Australia's equestrian teams are able to compete in Tokyo. Those 31 safety recommendations are being addressed, and the EA has taken great strides, as the strategy report exemplifies, to ensure the EA remains a stable governing body. Darren Gosher began his new role as the new CEO of Equestrian Australia, as of a few weeks ago on May 31st. From taking a quick look at his resume, he looks like he will be a great fit for the organization, especially since he has five years of experience with Athletics Australia. So what's our takeaway here, Sam? Australia is home of some of the world's best and honestly, some of the toughest riders and the data shows that equestrian sport is a major contributor to their economy. When we took a look under the hood of this positive economic study and strategy plan released by Equestrian Australia, we discovered the organization's governing challenges and their very close call of being out of the Olympics this year. Fortunately, Equestrian Australia seems to be back on track and we're optimistic that the sport will continue to be stable and safe for the years to come. Hey, are you an equestrian event organizer looking to put on your next clinic or schooling show? Pegasus is about to release its new event management system, which is a modern platform that makes it easy to accept entry registrations, receive digital signatures for your event paperwork, as well as manage the logistics and scheduling of your event. You can 
even digitally showcase your vendors and sponsors so that brands have much better visibility than the traditional logo on a fence. Pegasus has made it easy to run an event from start to finish with features designed for everyone involved, especially the riders, who can now easily register and receive real-time updates. Gone are the days of running your event through Facebook or tech from the 90s. Check out the launch of the Pegasus event management system at www.thepegasus.app. That is www.thepegasus.app. LZ, LZ, LZ. For our third and final story, we are looking at the equestrian labor market here in America. If you work at a stable or own and run a stable and have been struggling to find labor to help you get things done, you're not the only one. No, no, you're not. It doesn't take long hanging around any horse business person for the topic to quickly turn to the shortage of staff available. Whether we are talking about American-born equestrians willing to offer their services as working students to learn the ropes or foreign-born migrant workers who are looking for a good, steady job, the reality is there isn't enough of either of them to go around. A common story we hear at Pegasus goes along the lines of, how is it going at, insert bar name here. Terrible. All I do is work. I have no life. I'm so sorry to hear that. What is wrong? I'm up at 5am. I don't finish up until maybe 7, 8pm if I'm lucky. And then I'm just too tired to do anything else. And it's like that seven days a week. Well, can't you just get some help? I wish. I used to have some staff, but either I had to fire them for making mistakes that risked the health of my clients' horses, or they just simply left for a better job. A better job? Oh, yeah. Good workers are rare and they know it. So their prices are going up and up and up, and they're just moving around from job to job following the money. Uh, That sucks. Yeah, it's horrible. I can't afford the labor I need, and so I have to do it all myself, and consequently, my life sucks. I don't know how much longer I can go on like this. Honestly, I'm seriously thinking about giving it up. Does that sound familiar? Because I bet it does. It's prolific across the industry and not something that just affects the big players. It affects everyone, and it's the single greatest problem in the horse industry. When someone raises the term labor markets, we default to thinking of large companies and governments and these existential concepts of mass movements of people around the world that exist in theory and not really reality. But the truth is that this labor shortage we're all pained by, this is what labor markets and labor market inefficiencies actually look like. Your worker's visa expired and they can't renew it and so you have to leave the country. That's a labor market issue. Your best worker left because they got offered more money down the road. That's a labor market issue. You have paid to run job ads on every online job platform that you can find for three months straight and you have absolutely no applicants. That's a labor market issue. The point is, it affects us all, and that's why you often hear it discussed in the news, and politicians often make it a huge talking point when they run for office. Yeah, except they don't use the term labor market. They use the term jobs because their consultants have told them that the public doesn't understand the word labor market and that jobs is easier to digest. But that's a gripe for another time. (laughs) (laughs) So now that we understand how labor markets affect us in the equestrian industry, let's look at why these problems exist. There are two categories of labor market issues, short-term issues and long-term issues. Now, let's break them both down. First, let's look at short-term issues. Short-term labor issues in the equestrian industry pretty much explains why you can't find good labor for the barn. So not just working students or trainers, but also stable help to clean, feed, tack up, and turn out the horses. You may be surprised to hear this, but the source of these issues has an intersection with both 
national immigration policies and the large technology companies like Facebook, Google, and Apple. When Republicans came into power in 2016, their America First campaign manifested in many ways, one of which was a slew of executive orders that made it much harder for non-Americans to secure working visas to enter the United States. Historically, the majority of skilled labor that has come to America to make up for the lack of skilled labor we have developed organically has come in on what is called an H-2A and H-2B visa. Quoting from the Customs and Immigration Services website, the H-2A program allows U.S. employers or U.S. agents who meet specific regulatory requirements to bring foreign nationals to the United States to fill temporary agricultural jobs. And the H-2B non-immigrant program permits employers to temporarily hire non-immigrants to perform non-agricultural labor or services in the United States. The employment must be of a temporary nature for a limited period of time, such as a one-time occurrence, seasonal need, peak load need, or intermittent need. So in short, when it comes to securing foreign labor in America to help out around the barn or stable, employers have used H-2A visas for those that work on the farm and H-2B visas for equestrian-specific jobs such as grooms, hot walkers, and, and exercise riders. This became problematic when the Republican Party came into power because unlike the Democratic Party, who had an open border and international trade mindset that encouraged almost unlimited visas to all American employers who needed them, the Republican Party put major restrictions on them and started to require employers to apply for special exemptions from the Department of Homeland Security. This was only worse than when COVID-19 hit, with an even greater travel restriction being put in place for the health of America. And the approval of H-2A and H-2B visas was halted altogether. The American Horse Council did go to bat for our equine industry and managed to secure an exemption from the State Department by arguing that visas for people who care for non-farm animals should be approved. And as horses are considered non-farm animals, this was approved. But it meant that only visas that were already approved but delayed were freed up. No new visas were continued to be approved. So that's why labor is extra hard to find these days. The last four years of Republican efforts to create a regulatory environment that forced American employers to hire Americans created a much tighter visa system, which meant applying for a visa became way more difficult. And therefore, the immigration lawyers had to be involved unless people overseas you know, bothered to apply for them. Especially in our industry, where your average person could hardly afford an immigration lawyer to apply for working visas in America in the first place and especially not now. So what does this all have to do with large tech companies like Facebook, Google, and Apple? Well, they are our competitors, our very, very powerful and wealthy competitors. You see, the government only authorizes a few working visas each year. And while the H-2A visa is specific for agricultural jobs, the H-2B visa, which we rely on for jobs like grooms, hot walkers, and exercise riders, are also used for jobs like software engineers that these major companies rely on heavily for their workforce. So while we may be trying to secure some of these few visas each year for staff from Central and South America, they're trying to secure these visas for software engineers from China, India, etc. But unlike us who are working on a shoestring budget, they are working with huge budgets and teams of lawyers who do nothing but focus on this. And thus, they secure the majority of these limited visas for their people, making it harder for us in the equestrian industry to secure a small share of the available visas each year. So that's the short-term issue of our labor markets in the equine industry here in America. The America 
America-first platform combined with COVID combined with competition from very large, wealthy, and efficient visa applying companies means we in the equestrian industry are struggling to import any help and therefore the amount of labor available is simply in short supply. That's why you can't find someone to replace the worker who just quit or who you just fired. So if we can't import labor, what about locally grown labor? What about Americans who love horses and are willing to do the work? Well, this is the long-term labor market challenge in America that cripples the equestrian industry as well. And this is exactly what the Republican Party's America First policy was trying to address. The idea is that you invest a lot of money in university programs, trade school programs, etc., in order to generate a pipeline of Americans who are trained up and eager to fill all jobs across the equestrian labor market. The way governments generally do this, both at a national, state, and local level, is they create a grant that education institutions can apply for. And if they're awarded that grant, which is essentially a lump sum of money, they get to spend it on activities the grant is designed to serve. In this case, that means the education institutions would receive money to start programs that train up young equestrian workforces. Then they sell access to these courses. So not only do they get free money to create and run these programs, they also then make money from it by selling tuition fees. In theory, these education institutions are supposed to sell access to these courses at a greatly reduced price because they were given money to run it, which again, in theory, would attract lots of people to sign up because it's access to a path to a new career at a very cheap cost. In reality, though, unless the government makes very strict rules with these grants, these education institutions take the money and then charge a premium so they can maximize their profits. Because while they are supposed to be pillars of integrity who prepare the next generation for the workforce, the reality is they are businesses with a bottom line and shareholders and thus are all about making a buck. How you feel about this reality aside, all that really matters to you though is does it work? Does it get you access to affordable labor? And the answer is yes and no. Yes, in the long term, it will. But in the short term, absolutely not. Most of these courses run a while because universities have to keep you for a long time in order to rationalize why they charge so much. If they charged you 20000 for a degree and you were only there for four weeks, you would feel pretty ripped off. So they spread the course out across multiple semesters with long holidays in between. So you feel like you paid for a year's worth of education even though you probably could have learned it in four weeks. So no, it's too slow. We can't wait around for years for universities to train people. It isn't going to solve the labor shortage right now. So what's the alternative? The alternatives are one, trade schools and certificates, two, weaponizing the existing labor force that could be retrained and repurposed, and three, investing in new young talent without certifications. Going through each of them quickly, trade schools like your local farrier school are businesses that have no grants, no other costs besides running the program, and want to pump out as many courses as possible per year so that they can make as much money as possible. Thus, they focus on teaching only what you need to know as quickly as possible without jeopardizing the quality of education. This model results in trained, focused students in quick time, which means means more trained labor coming into the labor market for us all to hire as quickly as possible. So if you see trade schools, we beg you, get behind them. The second solution is weaponizing the labor that we already have. We all have family friends, aunties, uncles, etc., who love horses, have all been around horses their entire life, and often are looking for something to do to fill their day. Now, they don't want to work for free, but they would happily work a few days or mornings a week for a couple hundred dollars here and there. But hey, they know what they are doing, they care, and they are 
are available. So give them an opportunity and put them to work. Hey, mom, here's a wheelbarrow and here's a pitchfork. Stables one through six are calling your name. This approach does mean, however, that you will need to get better with your paperwork as you will have to file pay slips for more private contractors or part-time employees. And you will need to get better at organization as you'll be managing five people to fill the workload of two full-time staff. But if it gets the job done at a price you can afford, then that's the price you pay. Lastly, there is investing in new young talent. The one thing the horse world is not short of is aspirational young riders who adore horses and want to make them part of their life. And when they're young, they're protected from the real world stresses of running a horse business and so are not yet scared off by it. This group of labor can be your best friend. Now, they will request a higher salary than foreign-born labor but they will most likely do a better job. So if you invest in taking the time to nurture them, train them, pay them at a reasonable wage and inspire them to be the best they can be, then you can develop a loyal staff that do not require micromanagement, will not leave you for a price bump down the road and will relieve a lot of stress in your life. That sounds amazing, Sam, but how do you suggest we pay for all this amazing labor? You hire less people. If you train two people to be excellent, you can do with two what would take five average staff. Thus, you allocate all your salary money to those two staff instead of spreading it across five. All right, that was a lot to digest. We discussed visas, politics, tech companies, you name it. So make it easy for us. What's our takeaway, Sam? Across America, everyone who runs a horse business is struggling to find enough trained labor to run their business. This is because federal policies greatly restricted the amount of visas handed out to foreign labor, COVID restricted international labor, and tech companies are hoarding all the visas available. In the long run, the idea of governments giving money to universities and colleges to build a pipeline of new talent is too slow and doesn't help those who are struggling now. This all results in stressed out, in-debt horse business owners who have no life and feel like they are making no progress in their businesses. The solution to this is that we need to get behind our local trade colleges, start hiring older workers on a part-time basis to fill the gaps, and start investing in young, aspirational horse lovers and treat and pay them fairly so that we can build a sustainable equestrian labor market into the future. For our PSA this week, we've got some exciting news coming from the USDA. To start, we're officially 90 days away from the 2021 USDA American Eventing Championships. After last year's cancellation due to COVID, it is safe to say the eventers are super excited to be back at the iconic Kentucky Horse Park in Lexington, Kentucky on August 31st to September 5th. From learning about horse history to shopping at the AEC sponsor and vendor village to watching the grand finale of the 60,000 Adequan USEA Advanced Final, the competitors will have a week packed with action. Another update is that the Fairhill Organizing Committee just announced tickets for the inaugural Maryland Five Star at Fairhill. They're going to go on sale on June 14th at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. We'll include information on Pegasus, but for those who might not be familiar, the much-anticipated Maryland Five Star at Fairhill is taking place October 14th to 17th at the new Fairhill Special Event Zone in Cecil County, Maryland. The event is one of only two Five Stars in the United States and seventh worldwide. You can expect to see eventing elite riders compete for a combined $325,000 in prize money. (laughs) 
All right, that's it from Pegasus HQ this week. We hope you enjoyed those three stories and the updates from the industry. A quick reminder that we grab these stories from the news page on the Pegasus platform each week. So if you want to learn more about these stories or just enjoy a variety of global equestrian news in a single, easy, scrollable place, head over to www.thepegasus.app news. If you're keen to learn more about Pegasus, including the features our team is building for the equestrian community, follow us on Instagram at the Pegasus app and on Facebook at the Pegasus application. Lastly, if you want to be featured on Pegasus Weekly, either just a shout out to share the love or you want to tell the world about the amazing work your business, charity or school is doing, head over to www.thepegasus.app slash podcast. And before we go, we want to give a shout out to some of our newest Pegasus members. Welcome to Nancy Matalak, a dressage rider. And hello to Ali Cobble, a three-day eventer. And welcome to another dressage rider, Rob McInnes. And welcome to Sue Jacobs, an equestrian enthusiast. Hey there, Laurie Arnold, a hunter jumper. Welcome to Mary Surfacy, an eventer from Area 3. And to bring in the end, Jackie Phillips, a new three-day eventer on the Pegasus platform. All right, team, that wraps up this week's episode. We will catch you guys next week. <laughs>